What's the single best sign that your nonprofit is thriving? A, an engaged board. B, low overhead. C, a dynamic executive director. Or D, none of the above. So what is the best sign that your nonprofit is thriving? Get the answer at thrivingnonprofit.org. That's thrivingnonprofit.org. The nonprofit sector grows by leaps and bounds every year. In 2019, there were over 100,000 501c3 applications, and the overwhelming majority of these applications just sailed through. The paperwork may be a pain, but let's just say that the United States government is not particularly selective. I found myself wondering if that was the right path for the folks who apply or just the obvious one. And then as I continue to wonder, the question gets broader still. This overall path and the standard model, how's it holding up? Is it the right path or do folks just do what others have done? You know the path. Your organization likely traveled this way. An individual or a group of individuals found themselves fired up about something. They saw a gap. Todd Crawford realized that there was no organization out there raising awareness of the symptoms of a brain aneurysm. Had there been one, his wife, Lisa Calagrossi, might be alive today. Others see a new approach to solving a societal problem, like Robin Steinberg at Bronx Defenders. These folks were relentless, and they brought people to the cause. Before they knew it, perhaps folks were offering funding. And this ignited the need for a 501c3 to accept the donations and grow the work. The work grows, it gets visibility, and poof, it's an institution, a beast that needs to be fed, if you will. Board members, staff, and the never-ending quest for funding. We do this because that is how we do it. And yet we're seeing other models, different ones. The most visible may be Black Lives Matter, But there are many. Lindsay Hoffman from my team is part of a group that has organized via Slack to support people during COVID. It started as a small group in Brooklyn of about 20 people. They wanted to help neighbors who could not get out during the pandemic. It's now over 5,000 folks who have raised over $1 million that's been passed through to over 22,000 households. I'm working with this organization in Oklahoma City called Free Mom Hugs. Sarah Cunningham's deep Christian faith led her to reject her gay son when he came out. Her journey brought her to acceptance. During her first Pride March, she made and wore a button that said simply, Free Mom Hugs. She strolled through, she strolled through the parade, and a young woman walked up to her and asked for a hug. A warm hug, and then this. I have not gotten a hug from my mom in four years. And so it began. A few viral social media posts, and today, over 80,000 people from all over the country are hungry to get involved. But the question is how? To do what? Could it just be an organization that hugs LGBT people from non-affirming households? Or does it have to be an organization at all? Maybe it's a movement of folks who self-organize and make choices to hug literally or metaphorically however they choose. We're working through this with them and hoping they will be open to considering different models. To help in our work, I thought I should seek out some expertise on this topic to help me think through questions like, is the current model working, constraining us? What other models are out there? How do they work? What are the pros and cons of building institutions? Well, today I found myself one hell of a good source. And then I realized that all of you would benefit from this expertise too. So I thought I'd have the conversation here on this podcast with that expert so you can hear it too. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. Learn more at joangary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector, My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Rinku Sen is a writer and social justice strategist. She is formerly the executive director of Race Forward and was publisher of their award-winning news site, Color Lines. 
Under her leadership, Race Forward generated some of the most impactful racial justice successes of recent years, including Drop the I Word, a campaign for media outlets to stop referring to immigrants as illegal, resulting in the Associated Press, USA Today, the LA Times, and many more outlets changing their practice. She was also the architect of the Shattered Families Report, which identified the number of kids in foster care whose parents had been deported. Her books Stir It Up, and the Accidental American, theorize a model of community organizing that integrates a political analysis of race, gender, class, poverty, sexuality, and other systems. As a consultant, Rinku has worked on narrative and political strategy with numerous organizations and foundations, including PolicyLink, the ACLU, and the Nathan Cummings Foundation. She serves on numerous boards, including the Women's March, where she is co-president, and the Foundation for National Progress, publisher of Mother Jones Magazine. And I don't even think we've told folks what you do today. So, Rinku, thank you so much for joining us, for helping me think this through. Um, I'm glad you're here and welcome. Thank you so much, Joan. It's a real thrill to talk with you today. So, um, well, actually, you just listened to me for the last several <laughs> minutes. So um, the goal here is to get you talking. So I real, as I read your bio, I realized that we actually didn't talk about what you do today. So you want to you want to give folks a sense of that, the new adventure you're on now? Sure. I in early December, I became the executive director of Narrative Initiative, which is an organization that puts different kinds of creative people together to make interventions and in in the big stories we tell and live into. So um, we do a lot of work with, uh, right now, the Green New Deal Network to help them think through what what kinds of um, messages and frames they need to move out into the world that will build support for um, progressive policies. And uh, we... Uh, we also provide a ghostwriting service for grassroots organizations that need help getting things written. So we're here to help people change the big stories that shape so many of the institutions that in turn control our lives. Um, what a <clears throat> what a fabulous organization. And um, that is words. Uh, words absolutely matter, don't they? They do. Words matter and pictures matter, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, before we start a conversation about different models for having impact in the social sector, let's start with the standard model that I described that we all know pretty well. Is it working? I mean, goodness knows there are a lot of them. But the model has limitations, right? Let's talk through those. Looking at the, um, So let's talk through those. Yeah, you know, I think it's the 501c3 model that um, we're talking about. And the most important thing to remember is that that is a legal tax designation. It doesn't say anything about the purpose of the organization other than that it's, you know, broadly of public benefit, that it does something good for some set of people who who need things. And, um, and it has three important limitations because it is primarily a tax designation. And I'm going to just name those as I see them, and then we can talk about them. Sounds so the, the first uh, quite serious limitation is that it, if you are a 501c3 organization, there is a limit on what you can do that is considered political activity. Mm -hmm. So if you are running a food bank and you want to advocate for a change in food stamp policy in this in the uh, federal SNAP program, or you are a community organization, even like the ones that I spent my time in early in my career, and you want to change your local school system to be more just and fair, there are limits on um, what you can do that's considered lobbying. So if you're going directly to legislators or uh, politicians and saying, we want you to meet this demand or we want you to support this new piece of legislation, then the IRS is going to check to make sure that not more than 20% of your budget is going through the going to to those kinds of activities. Now, it's really important for me to say 20% because mm -hmm. there are lots of people in uh, 501c3 nonprofits who um, don't do any political activity because they understand 
that there's some limitation, but not really how deep the limitation is. Um, it's important for us to know that you have 20%, 20% of space. And I encourage everybody to take that space if you're, um, you're in an organization that aims to do well and wants to see some policy change. Right. So, um, they, so just to, just to clarify that too, mm-hmm. is that, um, a lot of 501c3. So the 501c3 status says that you can raise awareness and educate, but you can't lobby or advocate, kind of, you know, advocate. Um, and many boards are terribly risk averse around that. So this is an important piece of information to really mark as you listen to this podcast, that a 501c3 can lobby. 20%, not a bad percentage as, you know, as percentages go. Anyway, limitation number two. So limitation number two is that very often people um, start a C3 organization, like some of the groups that you mentioned in your introduction, because they want to be able to give their supporters a tax deduction. Um, I am here to tell you after almost two years of being on the Women's March Board, which is not a C3 organization, um, that especially donors making small donations, don't care about the tax deduction. So the idea that we have to have a C3 in order to raise money is not the case, particularly for individual donors and small dollar donors. um, However, foundations, if that's where you're raising your money from, do often require that you are a C3 operation. And so it, it, ends up meaning quite often that our 501c3 nonprofits are heavily reliant on foundation fundraising and on foundation grants. And um, anyone who has done even six months of foundation fundraising knows that that can be a very slow process. It can easily take a year to two years to cultivate a relationship that ultimately results in a grant to your organization. And that um, funders, if they're not giving you general operating support, which means you can take their money and do anything you need to do with it, if they're actually giving you project support to um, fund a particular aspect of what you do, um, that can really limit you in your ambition and your ability to pivot when your community needs you to take on something that you haven't actually been funded to do. So um, that funding base can be a limitation. And the last limitation is that in order to be comforting to foundations and often to other kinds of supporters too, a lot of our nonprofits adopt a very corporate hierarchical structure. There's a board of directors, there's an executive director. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't have to be this way. There's nothing in the C3 law that says you have to run in this exact structure, but it's really easy to adopt that structure because it's what we all know super well, even if we don't like it. (laughs) So... So, um, you know, groups that want to operate in a more flat situation where there isn't much um, uh, compensation difference, maybe, or not much power difference um, between the different pe- between the people who are actually doing the work of the organization, um, can feel forced into a hierarchy that doesn't actually m- meet match their needs and their internal culture. Uh- so, uh, excellent. Um, and probably news to people. So, um, I hope you're taking notes. Um, looking at the current model through an equity lens, Rinku, there are also some built in limitations kind of cooked into the model. And I wondered if you might speak to that. Well, a big part of, um, the, the advocacy limitation prevents, for example, service organizations with boards of directors that are risk averse from even using their 20%, which ends up meaning that your community doesn't get the level of change that it could get if if we weren't scared of using the 20% or if we uh, were to build other kinds of organizations that have more political freedom 
I like to say that not every collective effort needs to wind up as a 501c3 mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. It is it is the status quo. It's what most people do, but you don't have to do it that way. As I mentioned, uh, Women's March, when it moved from mobilizing to organizing, uh, the first thing they built was a C4 organization, 501C4, that doesn't have limits on lobbying. It can't support candidates. For example, um, there are electioneering rules that that even C4 organizations can't break. But it meant, being a C4 meant that we could speak about any policy at any time that our, our members and um, constituency wanted to have addressed. So, um, so if you're working in a community of color, you're working in a poor community, you're working in a feminist community, and that community needs structural change, systemic change, change that can affect more than one person at a time and be more durable than a nonprofit locally decides it's going to provide a service. When you need durable structural change, which, um, people who love racial justice and gender justice and liberation of other kinds, labor rights, uh, they, they need organizations that are capable of fighting at the systemic and structural level, fighting on policies, fighting on regulations, fighting on um, election rules and the shape of our democracy. So an over-reliance on the C3 form cuts us out of those kinds of strategies quite often mm-hmm. that communities need need to have happening so that their actual material conditions change right. and not just one household by one household, but for an entire community um, or an entire population of a state all at once. Um, great points all. So uh, you talk about sort of organizing and what it can look like. And let's talk about what you're, what you're seeing in terms of organizing and, you know, maybe talk about some kind of examples that folks might be familiar with. I mean, clearly we're familiar with marches and protests as models of organizing. And many of us remember one of the most uh, sort of high profile self-organizing models was different from what many of us had seen before in Occupy Wall Street. So tell us about, what can you tell us either about Occupy Wall Street, how it was, if it was organized, did the movement have a goal, and and what do you know about its impact? So let's just grab onto Occupy Wall Street for just a second as a, as a little bit of a, a deep dive. Sure, thank you. Um, I live in Queens, New York, or at least at the time of Occupy Wall Street, that's where I lived. Right. And um, I see the purpose and the goals of that movement as um, a couple of things. The biggest one, I think, was that they wanted to challenge capitalism as the unquestioned way we run this society. You know, um, uh, corporations produce things, human beings buy things, um, (laughs) other human beings uh, work for maybe okay wages, maybe not, maybe survival wages, maybe not even that, um, uh, to create the things that consumers will buy and that owners will profit from that, that consumption. So I think what they were trying to do is, um, a very, create a very visible, um, physically present way of introducing Americans to the idea that capitalism isn't the only way we can do things and that, in fact, capitalism has created enormous harm in the society and enormous harm on actual human beings. So a lot of their purpose was educational and actually narrative. They were trying to create a new narrative. I was just going to say, I was just going to say that that was what they were trying to do is create a new narrative. And I'm, I'm not sure that their ultimate narrative worked for them that well. Well, I think it depends. Um, And it depends on what you think the ultimate narrative needed to be. Mm -hmm. So did it, did it disrupt support for capitalism enough that a Donald Trump couldn't get elected? Clearly not because he got elected and (laughs) if, and he is the quintessential capitalist. Um, However, what it, what it did do was 
introduce a ton of particularly young activists to the idea that we could build pockets of new practice. Um, the fact that Occupy Wall Street went on as long as it did, that the that New York City could not shut it down in the brutal ways it wanted to initially because there was actually public support building around the occupation of Zuccotti Park. Right. So, so the challenge that Occupy Wall Street created was heavily a narrative challenge, but it was also a practical challenge in that they had to make that community functional. They had to be able to eat and sleep and keep mm-hmm. people warm and be safe. Right. And what I think they hoped to do was prove that that could happen outside of the context of capitalism. That could happen when there was no profiteering going on, when there was uh, nothing being sold, but things just being produced and exchanged, and that a community could could uh, be resourceful enough to, to gather what it needed. Now, lots of important um, offshoots came out of Occupy Wall Street. So, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was was a member of Occupy Wall Street. She was in Zuccotti Park. And she took that experience and moved it, moved herself into a form of change making, into an arena uh, where, um, in my view, she's done quite well. Um, There are other folks who started um, organizations coming out of Occupy Wall Street. And I think actually what we see now so clearly that is a thread between Occupy Wall Street and the pandemic is an enormous rise of mutual aid schemes, organizations, efforts in the pandemic, which mirror what uh, Occupy Wall Street showed us, which is that in the absence of an effective government and corporate structure, we have to be able to do it for ourselves. We have to just keep, keep each other alive. Um, in fact, actually, the, the example I used in the intro in Brooklyn, the mutual aid slack, um, that those organizers went to a training that, that AOC was part of bringing to communities so that they, that they understood their own power to organize and provide mutual support. So you, you're totally spot on. Right. And I think another big function of Occupy Wall Street was to bring new people into the struggle for social justice and to, um, and if they weren't all new to social justice, um, to still introduce them to other ideas and organizations that they needed exposure to. I did a training on structural racism for Occupy Wall Street that 400 people came to. It was um, standing room only mostly white, but not exclusively. And, um, and I learned a ton of things from, from being in that, um, from being in the room with those folks. And they took that knowledge um, and the, the concepts that we taught and did other things with it um, over, over the years since then. During COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is now in paperback and you can learn more at book.joangary.com. So what about, let's talk about other movements you have, other kinds of movements you've seen and what they tell us about these these questions of form. Yeah. So one thing that's relevant to our discussion here is that um, if a 501c3 organization lasts long enough to become an institution, it tends to have reputational assets, uh, leadership assets, and financial assets. Um, and I, I want to just describe some of the differences I see between sure. institutions and movements. That would be so great. institutions, uh, in order to get to that point, 
they often have centralized a lot of things, centralized decision-making, centralized resource generation, centralized strategy and programs so that they can um, control the quality of those and, um, and pursue a set of goals together that makes sense. Movements are decentralized. Um, in fact, one of the key ways that you check whether or not something is a movement is to see whether um, lots of people are picking up the demands and the tactics of that movement mm-hmm. without being told to do it. Right, okay. There's, there's no one at the center saying, do this now, then do this, then do this. Um, there's, there's, there, uh, lots of people get inspired often by the first example by Zuccotti Park. So then they then occupy a park in Chicago and occupy a park in Seattle and occupy a park in LA. Um, but in that decentralized movement, you can't control people's decision making. You just can't. And you shouldn't want to because the, the, what is spurring the growth is the ability of lots of people to enter in and do something without having to get permission and without having to raise a ton of money to do it. So, um, and movements are critically important to, um, changing public consciousness and challenging, um, challenging people to take action. They, they get much more attention um, than institutions do because they've created through their action a an, um, a moment that you can't ignore. So everyone has to report on it. It's on your TV all the time. Um, streaming documentaries are made and streaming about them. And it's in the interest of institutions that those movements take shape because I mean, presumably the institutions have been fighting for the same things that the movements are, are also fighting for, but, but institutions have limitations. They have these C3 form limitations. They have to um, answer to their funders, often a significant number of them. They, um, they're uh, run by a board of directors. Also, mm-hmm. institutions tend to be accountable to lots of players that movements aren't always. And together, they can make enormous change. So what I love to see is movements that get institutional support. The Working Families Party did a ton of support for Occupy Wall Street and um, and got labor unions to support, support them too. So uh, Occupy Wall Street would not have lasted as long as it did without that institutional connection. But an institution had to decide not to be in a competitive stance, but in a collaborative stance um, with that movement. Well, I would assume also um, there had the, the collaboration had to be set up in such a way that the institution, which has to protect its reputation, right, has to has to make some kind of a decision that's perhaps bolder than institutions are uh, normally accustomed to making or being, right? In my experience, it's always a little bit of a struggle. Um, There are a few institutions that um, when movement breaks out are ready to support it. It's not not a thing that institutions think of as part of their core purpose always. Um, And there's often conflict inside the institution because it's a risk. Uh, You don't know where that movement's going to go entirely. You can't tell them what to do. So they're, they're not checking with you either. Yep. Yep. You have to have a lot of trust and, um, and enough relationships with the movement. If you're the institution, you have to have enough relationships in the movement space, which often means with younger people, with um, people who are newer to organizational doings, organizational things, um, people who have been shut out of the whole nonprofit system in yep. one way or another. Uh, and, and those are risks. So if you're, an inst- in, if you're in an institution, um, you have to weigh what your, what your risk profile is. And probably you're not going to have a hundred percent risky programs. You'd go out of business fairly quickly. Yep. Um, but but there is room here, and 
Um, and the institutions that have planned in their strategy for some level of risk-taking year after year, knowing that things are going to change, things are going to come up, new uh, people, efforts, issues are going to emerge. I think smart institutions, committed institutions, leave themselves some space in their uh, program plans for that, in their budgets for that, and they talk about it with their EDs and board boards of directors and senior leadership uh, to be ready for those moments. Well, it's interesting, and and this is a little um, a bit of a digression, but I, um, you know, this demands the kind of collaboration you're talking about does demand that board leadership be. Um, sort of think about themselves as as more than folks who monitor and provide oversight and and i i actually think there's been a moment in 2020 where organizations not necessarily in the ways you've described but in other ways have had to be nimble and innovative and take risks and do different things um in order to survive, to thrive, to be able to do remarkable work with fewer resources, all of those things. And if there's a lesson to come out of 2020, it should be to market like hell to your boards about what value innovation and being bold and taking chances and moving a little quickly can actually have for your organization. Because I've seen all through last year that there were organizations that survived because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, organizations that had the freedom to pivot um, when conditions changed so dramatically that you could not ignore it. Like nobody could ignore a pandemic. Um, you know, if the country goes to goes to war, as we did after September 11th, lots of institutions didn't really have to deal with that, in fact. And, and the American people didn't have to deal with that. There wasn't a lot of shared sacrifice in the... Um, in the war on terror as it shaped up after uh, September 11th happened. And um, I think, you know, people in institutions know their institutions best, and some institutions are never going to be able to make that pivot, no matter how dramatic um, the, the context change is. But I think what has shocked so many people out of the pandemic, um, including disability rights activists, is how quickly so many institutions that had resisted accommodating uh, accommodations around disability just did it. Right. You know, because everybody needed it. They they went to remote work. Yep. They bought people um, whatever technology they needed to be able to work remotely. They became very flexible with their time policies, um, which just goes to show you that all of that could have been happening all anyway, along. Yes, yes. And that it's um, kind of a, a, it's a stuckness that prevents us from um, in institutions just meeting the needs of our people. It, it wasn't like no one at... Um, uh, I'll just use my own, you know, race forward where I used to work and be right. the president. You know, we had a we had a limited work from home policy, but we had offices and and we also wanted to be able to hire people who weren't who didn't live near those offices. So, we could have gone all fully remote probably 10 years ago and um and I and I suspect although I don't know the daily operations there anymore. I suspect that they won't come out of this pandemic period um, with the same office and co-working structures. I'm sure that they, I'm sure that they won't. And just to go back to your, um, how, you know, your work today, that it is incumbent upon the organizations to tell the story, the narrative of this innovation to their boards as as something that 
should be part of the DNA of the organization going forward, as opposed to these special little things we did because we because we were in the middle of a pandemic. And how you shape that narrative with your board might just make all the difference in them seeing their own role and the power of innovation in a in a really different way. So, yeah. um, oh, actually, can ahead. I just add sure. uh, quickly to that? Um, when you're trying to set a new narrative, whether it's at the organizational level or something larger, some key things are you want to start with values. Why Why did we do this thing? Because we value the health of our people right. and because we want them to have what they need to be able to do their work. Um, you want to start with values and you have to be prepared to do a ton of repetition. So just you're going to say it every time you get on the phone with a board member. It's going to be at the top of every memo you write about how things are going. Um, so values and repetition, thinking about those two things will will help shift organizational and that, story. And right. that is why Rinku Sen, who's my guest today, is, uh, is the executive director of the Narrative Initiative, which is a project of the New Venture Fund that seeks to change and influence narratives surrounding issues of equity and social justice. Um, and she is a longtime writer and social justice strategist. Um, so Rinku, are there organizations that began organically and then were either sort of drawn or evolved into organizations or institutions? Like, I'm kind of intrigued about sort of, yeah, if the, if there's an example that comes to mind that uh, where something morphed from one to the other. Yeah, I think Black Lives Matter is a good example here. Um, and I think Women's March is also a good example here. As Black the co-president Lives- of that board, you might you probably <laughs> yes. know a little. So either or uh, both would be great to talk about. Yeah, in, in both cases, actually, there was um, a mobilization at the beginning of it. There was a framing of a social problem. Uh, Black Lives Matter is a very clear framing. And uh, Women's March is a clear framing after the election of Donald Trump. Um, It wouldn't be as clear before Trump was elected. And it didn't happen before Trump was elected. uh, Women's March was motivated by a very specific political um, event. And in, in both cases, I think... When you have a movement moment where millions of people get out on the streets or hundreds of thousands of people get out on the streets, the likelihood that a whole lot of those people are new to organizing, to protest, to action is very high. Um, The first women's march, 70% of the marchers had never marched before, they said. They'd never gone to a protest. They were not like weekend rally goers. it was their first time. And Black Lives Matter, I think, was um, that it probably wasn't 70% of newcomers, but it certainly was a large percentage. Um, And whenever you have a mobilization that brings a lot of new people into action, uh, one of the decision points is, should we make organization out of this or not? And Occupy Wall Street decided not. Black Lives Matter decided yes. And Women's March decided yes. And um, and I think Women's March decided yes the most quickly because Black Lives Matter, actually, um, the movement was grounded by organizations that did exist. They weren't called Black Lives Matter organizations, but they were Black community organizations that had been fighting on police brutality issues for decades. Right. So um, I think, you know, in both cases, people decided to go on and build some organization or to support existing organization under the rubric of that movement, uh, Black Lives Matter or Women's March. And when they decided to do that, because it felt like there was an opportunity to build something uh, a little more permanent that needed to be built. Um, I, I know all of the principles involved in both decisions, and I know that they weren't they weren't thinking, "Oh, let's build an organization just to build it, just because we can." 
They were thinking our people who hit the streets need an ongoing way to intervene in local, state, and national politics so that people can, in the case of Black Lives Matter, um, end the cycle of police violence against Black black folks. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm never the one to judge whether some organization should have been built or not. If, if it got built, then I trust that the people involved made that decision thoughtfully and for, for good reason. So Women's March. <clears throat> so what is it as an organization, right? So everybody knows what a Women's March is, right? So the decision to become permanent, um, I, I think I understand that sort of the, the what propelled you to make a decision to become permanent. What does permanent look like for the Women's March? Yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't part of Women's March leadership in the first three, three years. Okay. Um, uh, but I, but I know some of the history and I think the, the purpose of it became to be an on-ramp for new feminists, um, and to, um, model multiracial feminism to, to do it. It's hard to model something if you're not actually doing it. So yep. first to, to build a, um, a, a home for a multiracial home for feminists of all ages and all identities. And, um, because Women's March attracted so many first timers and newbies, the organizational purpose has really become to provide an on-ramp to ongoing organizing with your neighbors, with your family members, with your friends, uh, with other feminists. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so some of the kinds of things we do are uh, we do a lot of education about how you organize and why people organize around the things they do. So why did black, why does Black Lives Matter organize? We did a whole series of uh, webinars for our folks once uh, uh, when things broke out in Minneapolis last summer mm -hmm. so they could understand what protests against police violence have to do with feminism? <laughs> What's the connection there? And so that we could um, mater provide material support uh, in the form of money to Black organizations in Minneapolis. Um, we also did a ton of work on the election. Um, and I remember one of my friends made calls with the Democratic Party on the front end and then uh, during the election and the next week, she made calls through Women's March. And she told me I got so many more people willing to talk to me when I was calling from Women's March than when I was calling from the party. And I think I think that's because um, Women's March is, in fact, a credible third party validator of um, good politics. <laughs> so... So it was, um, you know, we don't have a self-interest in who's in office, except that they are good for women, that they'll right. do good things for women. And that um, opened up a road to a ton of election um, turnout and registration that we, uh, we wanted to do. And just to give you a sense of how Women's March went around the limitations, we are a C4, which means we can lobby, but we still can't electioneer as a C4. You can't endorse candidates. You can't, um, uh, you can't spend all of your time and money doing election-related stuff. And so we built a PAC uh, because PACs can do all of that. Um, so we, we quickly saw the limitations of the form that we were in. Yep given the moment we were in and just built something else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, I think if you're going to build an organization, the reason you do that is because permanence is going to help um, make the work better. It's going to bring more money into the work. It's going to bring more expertise into the work. It's going to provide an ongoing home for a constituency that really needs one. Those are the reasons to formalize and 
um, move from mobilization to organization. So we have um, just a, a a little bit more time, and I'm struggling because I want to talk about honorable closings, and I want to talk about the questions that you feel are important to ask as you consider the form that your work should take. So is there a way you can do a... The honorable closing is not my phrase. It's actually Rinku's. And um, this is, you know, the, the Rinku was just talking about permanence, but then there are organizations that should have honorable closings. And can you give us a quick snapshot on that? Because I want to leave with the, the sort of the questions folks should be asking themselves. Um, so let's talk about um, honorable closings. So sometimes the organization you've built has done what it needed to do and um, has come to kind of a natural end point. Uh, The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, there's hardly anyone who knows anything about civil rights in this country who does not know the name SNCC. John Lewis came out of SNCC. Uh, Jesse Jackson came out of SNCC. Uh, Ella Baker was a great supporter um, from behind the scenes of SNCC. But SNCC in its um, in its most effective period, that was three years, right. only three years. And yet 50 years later, we're talking about SNCC because of the effect it had. So, so an honorable closing to me means that you've judged, um, you've judged that the closing is coming. Um, I'll do the uh-huh. questions at the very end. And you've made a plan for closing so that you're not just, you don't just have to disappear without a word to anybody about what you had been able to do, commemorating your good work and your victories. And, um, and you are in control of the closing. That's what makes it honorable. Yes. You are in control, not, not the state, not your funders, um, and not anybody but your own members and staff and board of directors. I think that's right. So let's close with the, um, uh, with the questions you think folks who are listening, who may be thinking about, I mean, we've, you've given them so much to think about today. Um, but the questions you feel are important to ask as you consider the form your work should take. And I have a self-interest here because I have my, my friends in Oklahoma City who, um, who give away free hugs. And, and I think that they will find your advice to be helpful. Yeah, my advice is to first ask yourself whether an organization needs to exist. Um, I, I did a panel this week with, um, with uh, uh, Kristen Urquiza, who whose father died of COVID um, last year in March, very close to the beginning or uh, close to the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And she started something called Marked by COVID. It is all volunteer. There is no need to raise money because they don't pay anybody. And, um, And yet it is an organization. It has some permanence. It will certainly last as long as the pandemic does, but potentially beyond that. So the big question you have to ask yourself at the beginning is, do we need an organization and for what purpose? Do we need it to raise money that people can't raise on their own? Do we need it to centralize decision-making because that's a critical function of um, the work we're trying to do? Do we, um, have we volunteered so much that people are finding it hard to survive? continuing to volunteer. We need to actually start to have professional staff. Um, Those are the kinds of questions. uh, And it's important to ask yourself too, is there an existing organization that could absorb our energy, um, that could help it grow from here so that we don't have to build a new one? And then if you do decide you need an organization, then think about, is it a C3 tax-exempt uh, operation? Do you need the tax exemption? Is um, Do you need political freedom? In which case, maybe you should build a C4 or a PAC because you're right. going to be doing so much lobbying that you need that space. Um, is it an LLC? Do we just need to start a business that can collect money and report on it, um, but isn't subject to these tax limitations, tax-related lobbying limitations? And if you're in an organization 
Um, I think it's always good to ask yourself periodically, does this organization still need to exist? Have we done what we came to do? Are other people now doing what we started out doing so that there's a field? We don't need to do it anymore because because others are doing it even better than we did it um, as we started. So need and purpose are really the uh, questions you want to focus on. I, <clears throat> uh, before we started recording, Rinku was uh, talking about the fact that uh, the Narrative Initiative is working on strategy and sort of, you know, what they want to be and... Um, and one of the questions that we ask if we do strategy, strategic, we call it strategic visioning, is if your organization disappeared from society's hard drive tomorrow, um, what gap would there be and who would fill it? And it's a really, it's a, it's a useful, it's a useful device to hone in on your real purpose or to determine conversely that it's not quite so clear or there isn't that big a gap or someone else would clearly fill it. So um, I think these are good questions all. And I go back to something that you said, Rinku, that is there a need for decentralized decision-making or do you think there needs to be centralized decision-making? So are you risk-averse such that you believe centralized decision-making somehow or another reduces your risk? Um, and I think that's maybe that's the big takeaway from this conversation today is is what Rinku is talking about is that it is incumbent upon all of us to be open to uh, what what form something should take right and to focus on what it is you actually want to accomplish and not necessarily default to the institution model because it may in fact actually thwart your ability to have the kind of impact in the world that you want to have and that there is also a lesson in this that thinking more boldly being a bit more provocative being a bit more innovative is something so many people a muscle so many people exercised in 2020 that we certainly don't want that to atrophy. So um, I just wanted to say thank you, Rinku. I um, I usually, well, I talked a lot at the beginning. I usually talk more, but I I, I gained so much from this conversation um, and um, your wealth of knowledge is uh, so apparent and I can't thank you enough for um, sharing it with our listeners who are very lucky indeed to have had the opportunity to listen to you today. Well, they're lucky to have you, uh, Joan, uh, and to be your listeners. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So um, that's it for us today. I... I, um uh, if you need to have another listen to take notes, if you were like on the elliptical machine or something, you totally should. And what a great conversation to tee up with your board. Could you imagine sending this out as a pre-listen to your board at a retreat to just get them thinking expansively about what might be possible? We're going to have to stretch our board members' muscles in this regard in all different kinds of ways in order to make new things possible. So there's my little advice for today. So in the meantime, thank you so much um, for all the work that you do. Um, Thanks for listening and um, please stay safe. Hey, thanks for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thanks for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.